what advice would you give an aspiring investor that's six to 12 months behind where you are right now? Well, I would say just keep trying, you know, phone call after phone call. Uh, eventually you'll, you'll be able to get, get where you want to be. Yeah, I, I would have to echo what Andrew's saying. I think, you know, tenacity and just not giving up is really the only difference between people that give up and people that don't give up. It, it is a, it's a process. So you're not going to go, you know, buy a $5 million apartment complex two weeks after you decide you want to go buy a $5 million apartment complex. For what we're trying to do in this business, it's a process. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is journal entry number 122 and part of our first deal series. Today we speak to Sterling Chapman and Andrew Bruff, who are going to tell us about how they closed on a 53-unit property in Atlanta, Georgia in February for $4.2 million. And now, the show. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bristow with Four Oaks Capital. And once again, I'm very excited for today's show. It's a first deal series episode with two guys that I've known for quite a while now. We have Andrew Bruff and Sterling Chapman on the line with us. They both recently closed on a 53-unit apartment complex in Atlanta, Georgia in February of 2021, uh, valued at $4.2 million. So that said, Sterling, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Thanks for Brian. having us. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we've known each other for quite a while. I think, Andrew, I met you first probably probably almost three years now is, is what I'm thinking. But I think you were one of the first people that I came across in the Michael Blanc community. So excited to see this happen and uh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. And incidentally, for everybody listening, um, Andrew and my wife went to the same high school uh, <laughs> a couple of years apart. So there, there's you know a little connection there as well. But uh, so let's start about let's start talking about your guys' background and you know since since just talking about Andrew going to high school Andrew why don't you go first tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to this apartment investing career okay yeah so I'm I'm from Utah I've been in the commercial lending banking industry for a long time I've been in banking for 22 years commercial lending for 16 mm-hmm. I guess what got me into this is I, I lend to uh you know, commercial developers, high net worth real estate investors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw that the uh, financial strength they had and, and thought, well, you know, this is something I want to try. Mm-hmm. Started the journey. I was able to, I got into a couple of education programs, um, Michael Blanc's as, as, as one of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, just started the journey there. Um, and yeah. so just, tra- you know, transitioning, uh, trying to give myself options uh, down the road. You know, I've met a lot of people who have similar stories where they were on the other side. They were on some sort of servicing part of people who are doing large real estate transactions. And it seems like a lot of them have a similar story where it's like the light bulb goes on and they're like, I'd rather be on that side of the fence. You you hear that with accountants a lot. CPAs, they're like, all my richest clients have real estate. So I decided to get into it. Yeah. You know, and it it happens so frequently and it's, it's just something that attracts people. 
Um, you know, one, one of the larger guys in the, in the Texas market, same thing. He was a commercial lender and he says this all the time. He's like, yeah, I wish I was a, figured out I was on the wrong side of the fence. So, you know, started doing that. But yeah, so, so you saw all these high net worth people come in and you're like, I've got to get me some of that real estate. Basically yeah. how that came down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Sterling, how about you? What, uh, what, tell us about your background and what you, what got you interested in into real estate? Yeah. So I guess my, my going far back, my background's in finance. I went to LSU for, for finance and, and got into insurance and investments right out of school and did that for a few years, small investments, series six, you know, variable annuities, mm-hmm. setting up Roth IRAs and stuff like that. And then I transitioned into the telecom industry where I went into corporate America and, and really kind of like took off and was promoted several times very quickly. At the time I wanted to I wanted to be the the CEO of my company one day, you know, just dedicated to corporate America, really excited about where I was going. And then I went uh, went back and got my MBA and took some entrepreneurship classes. And that kind of really like started making me want to kind of create a separate life outside of serving corporate America. And a, a few things all happened at once. As I was finishing up my MBA, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and my boss who had been with my company for 17 years and done great for all those years, was all of a sudden found himself out of a job in his mid forties because they just... Ooh. They, they did this periodical restructure where they surplus and lay, lay people off. Mm-hmm. And, and I was about to get married and buy my first house. And I just had this like horrible vision in my head of like having a mortgage and two car notes and three kids in private school in my forties. And like the, the, the just turning the faucet off yeah. and the lack of control terrified me. And um, so I, I, I I'd realized I'd associated so much of my identity with serving this, this corporate American master that I just, I didn't even know what I would do in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of started to entertain some other things. Like I said, I was finishing up my MBA and really getting into entrepreneurship. And then when I read Rich Dad Poor, I said, okay, well, real estate investing is a way to financial freedom. So I started buying single family houses and then I, I quickly ran out of money saving up down payments. And, yep. and then I, and then I started burn houses and I started burn duplexes and I built up a portfolio of uh, 42 um, like duplexes, fourplexes and single families. Mm-hmm. And I was managing them all myself. And that I was really crazy then because I had a newborn child. I was managing 42 units and I had this full-time job and I was like, there's got to, and I wasn't really making much money because a lot, a lot yeah. of the cash flow was going towards maintenance. And I was like, there's got to be a better way than this. Mm-hmm. So I, I read Joe Fairless's book on um, apartment syndication, the um, best ever apartment syndication book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I started a podcast. You've been on my show because yeah. I wanted to start a thought leadership platform to kind of build up. And at the time I had people that were already investing with me that wanted to, and more people that wanted to invest with me, but I didn't, I didn't like have the bandwidth to go out and find deals. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. first of all, I didn't really like know the entire, or wasn't comfortable enough with the entire underwriting process. And just sourcing apartments in Louisiana, where I'm from, is not a great place to buy apartments, <laughs> especially South Louisiana. So, so the idea of like sourcing, you know, large apartments in other states was just kind of a reach for me. And and that kind of bridges into what I think is going to be your next question is like kind of how did me and Andrew hook up? Yeah. Well, Andrew posted on Facebook because like we're thousands of miles away. I mean, he's in Utah. I'm in in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Andrew posted on Facebook. Hey, my um, my apartment syndication group is looking for a capital raiser. Does anybody is anybody interested? 
And so I sent him a private message. I said, hey, man, I'm interested. Let's talk. Yeah. And we talked and we went to go to that group and and they had like, they kind of just, they had a different model with the investor splits. That was, it wasn't something I really wanted to do. So I was like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to back out because it wasn't as investor friendly as I really wanted to be leading. And, mm-hmm. and he called me like a week later. He goes, look, I agree with you. Let's go do our own thing. And that was about a year and a half ago. And we have been uh, working together ever since just diligently analyzing deals and looking for deals and and building the brand and trying to get it together. Yeah, I really like that. Now, I I would assume it was in a a multifamily Facebook group that, uh, that Andrew, you dropped that post, right? I think it was Bigger Pockets, actually. Oh, Bigger Pockets. Yeah, (laughs) I have no idea. I don't. I don't recall where it was. <laughs> yeah, so you so you dropped you dropped that somewhere, and it led to you know a conversation, led to a, a partnership later, and I, I see that that model repeat itself, you know, very frequently. You know, every case is a little different, but you know, people who are looking for a partner, you know, you've got to put yourself out there a little bit. You know, so a- Andrew, you went on a limb saying, "Hey, this is what I'm looking for." Dropped it in. Sterling, you went on a limb on the back end saying, I don't know who this guy is, but, you know, I'll, I'll at least respond and, and, and start something. Right. So, yeah, I think big lesson learned from that is number one, you got to ask. And number two, you got to you got to try to reach out to people. So good on that one. So let, let's talk. One thing I want to hear from both of you. Um, you gave us a ba- little bit of your backgrounds, but what's what's your big burning? Why? You know, what is motivating you guys? to be successful in this industry. Andrew, you want to go first and tell them about the five kids you got to feed? <laughs> yeah. That's uh that's my burning why. <laughs> yep. I understand that big, one. <laughs> I have a big family and you know I just want to, you know, provide for them. I've also been through two job losses in the banking industry mm-hmm. and that really set us back financially and so I want to be able to give myself options. Um, I don't want to be um, in a situation like I was those two times. I want to be able to have options if that ever happened again. Yeah, and that's that's something that Sterling brought up with his boss, you know, in, in his 40s. Just you become dependent on a single stream of income or a single source of providing for your for your family, and that source dries up. You know, it, it's not a good position to be in. So. This is definitely a field and an industry or career that you can basically build multiple streams of income and have many different directions where that money's coming in. Sterling, same question for you. What's what's your big burning why? Yeah, so it's it's a combination. It, it has to do with you know the, what we just discussed mm-hmm. about the you know the insecurity of depending on one stream of income from somebody else and and all the stress and anxiety that comes along with that and not wanting to live with that stress and anxiety. But for me, what what I I really harp on a lot is the time. Mm-hmm. So people, a lot of people are in this industry because they want to get rich. And a lot of my friends and family that see how much time and energy I put into it think, oh, Sterling's obsessed with getting rich. It's not getting rich that I care about at all. It's getting the time back with my family. You think about the average person, you know, retires when they're 67. Well, yeah. if I could retire when I'm 40, that literally adds 27 years to my life. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I could go to every single one of my kids baseball games or wrestling tournaments or cheerleading things. You know what I mean? I could, I could spend all that time traveling with my wife. I, the, I could live an extra life by retiring 25 years earlier. Yeah. And not just, you know, live a lot life on the two weeks of vacation you get a year and, you know, the occasional long weekend. So yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, 
It takes money to be able to do that though, you know, and money is, I think a tool more than anything else, you know, getting that time, you either have a lot of time or a lot of money, but Hey, guess what? It is, it's possible to do both. So I, I think uh, for the, for the working class time or money is always the issue, but trying to get out of that. So let's, let's talk about some of the challenges you guys face, you know, getting the ball rolling, you know, and not necessarily, you know, with, with each other, but in your own individual journeys, you know, when you decided to make that transition into multifamily, what, what are some of the challenges you face and how did you overcome those? Well, for, for me, I could definitely tell you the answer is, was fear. Mm-hmm. So if I look back on it, that, that's, that's a big undertaking when you, when you, I'm going to go buy a several million dollar apartment complex and I'm going to raise the people's money to go do it. And so at, at one point I, I can look back and I've, I found like Andrew was aggressive, you know, just the different roles we tend to play. I, I try and take more of the, the investor relations role and he, mm-hmm. he, he tends to take more of the acquisition type role because of his, his, you know, background in finance and his strength in underwriting. So Andrew was coming up with deals and I I like looking back, I almost feel like subconsciously I was like trying to like find an excuse to get out of them because I was, I was subconsciously afraid to take that leap. So how'd you, how'd you overcome that? I mean, was it, was it just familiarity and, and, you know, just looking at more and more and more and gradually becoming comfortable with it or what, uh, what got you over that, uh, that hump? Well, I think as, as I told the story a minute ago, I had, 42 units when, when Andrew mm-hmm. and I met, I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I think when Andrew and I met, we might've had, I might've had 18 units and then I've built up to 42 over the mm-hmm. course of the, our last, you know, year and a half together. And so I think that, that helped, mm-hmm. you know, as I, as I, my portfolio grew and my confidence grew, the podcast helped me a good bit yeah. interviewing people always kind of get misconstrued about the the podcast. Well, how many listeners do you have and how popular is this? I don't care if anybody listens to it. I get to interview the smartest guys in That's the industry so every single week. Yeah. You know, I always, uh, I think we talked about this. I always joke about it. When I, when I first started that show, I interviewed Gino Barbaro from yeah, Jake and Gino. He's awesome. He is awesome. But a week later I was looking through some kind of like Facebook or something. And I saw that he was selling one hour coaching sessions for $3,000. Man, I got my one hour coaching session for free. Yeah. <laughs> but I think just constant exposure to, you know, people that had proof of concept, people mm-hmm. that that expressed they had the same fears as me, they came from the same humble places as I yeah. did, and they were able to work through it and just seeing it over and over and over again. And then also, you know, our deal, I mean, granted, it's $4.2 million is a decent sized deal, but it's, you know, a lot of the ones we looked at previously were like 300 units, mm-hmm. you know, a, a $20 million deal. That That's a little more difficult to digest than a $5 million deal yeah. where, where we had additional partners. So it's for us, it, for me personally, it's just, it's been kind of baby steps up. And I know not everybody subscribes to that thought process. Uh, some people say, oh, well, you know, go buy you a 300 unit right out the door. Uh, I was just more comfortable along the way, creeping my way up. Yeah. And, you know, I'm ready for that that 150 unit now, but you know, I think, I think most people have to do the baby step approach and you know, my, my growth is baby step, baby step, baby step, baby step, giant leap, baby step, baby step, baby step. And I I have those breakthrough moments that, uh, that really push me forward, but you know, it's the same thing, you know, a lot, a lot of little baby steps. And I think you hit the nail on the head when I started putting myself around people who have done what I'm trying to do. It's, 
those were the giant leaps. You know, those were the times where I thought, you know what, I can go out and purchase a 50 unit apartment, you know, instead of looking for the five and eights. So anyway, thanks for that. And Andrew, same question for you. What, what are the, some of the challenges you had getting started? You know, similar to, to Sterling, uh, the fear of, of getting out there and talking to brokers and, and some of that thing, some of those things that, you know, the coaching um, group coaching that I joined uh, kind of helped me get over that. You know, they, they uh, encouraged me to contact brokers and start, underwriting deals. And, you know, I'd already had that, been talking to professionals in the industry anyway. So that helped a lot to be able to, to transition and start doing that. So yeah, I think that, and then just not having the capital, um, that, mm-hmm. that was a concern. And, you know, Sterling's helping with that too. <laughs> you know, one, of my, one of my fears was, what if we get a deal under contract and I can't raise any money? Mm-hmm. And then like immediately the next fear is what if I can raise money? <laughs> what if they do say yes? And what if this doesn't that? work? What if it yeah. does work? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, our, our psyche does kind of play on our, on our minds a little bit where, you know, it's, we, we almost have a fear of succeeding, you know, where we're so happy and comfortable in our lives, but, what happens if we succeed? Well, that's going to change things. But, you know, I, I think for me, I just have to keep on reminding myself, it's going to change things for the better. It, it's going to add more responsibility on my shoulders. Yes. You know, and I'm, I'm going to be responsible for a couple million dollars worth of other people's money, which that's a little intimidating. It really is. But end of the day, there's, there's lots of ways to mitigate that fear. And I think you guys both found different ways to overcome your fear. And that's, I think what separates the doers from the people who don't do, everybody has a fear. Everybody has a challenge and, you know, people who've done stuff found a way to, to overcome it. So, well, let's start talking about uh, this, this particular deal here. So let's, let's talk about, you know, finding the deal and going through that process. So, you know, Andrew, can you tell us how, how the group found the deal? Um, who else is involved and process of uh, getting it under contract. Yeah, so so a couple of other of our, our partners have a uh, way of they've they've been contacting owners directly, mm-hmm. and that's how they found it. They they were cold calling owners, so they they brought me in on this um, to help with the capital raise, and and I brought Sterling in on this as well. So there's there's a few of us involved. Uh, that's initially how we found it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, was, I mean, what was it an immediate, you know, Hey, we want to buy your, your building or was there, did it take a little longer than that? No, I think it, it, it took a little bit of time and, you know, with owners, they're just not always ready to, to sell, but mm-hmm. I think they were able to convince them this is a good opportunity to do it. Nice. So f- from my understanding, they were using virtual assistants to cold call and they they cold called on another building, I think in a different state. Mm-hmm. And then they said, well, we don't want to sell this one, but we got this one right outside of Atlanta that y'all might want to look at. And Andrew, am I correct that the GP on the previous GP like left the country with the money or something? So the the limited partners had to take it over and they oh, they wow. They really didn't want to have anything to do with it. I mean, there's like a hedge fund manager and some other like some big shots that had like zero interest in stepping foot into a 53 unit apartment complex in Noonan, Georgia. You know? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was mismanaged. They, <laughs> it was a deal that fell apart. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, fortunately, you guys were able to you know have a have something in place. Um, it's it's not often you hear of 
cold calling owners actually working once you get into the couple million dollar values, you know, 53 units in Atlanta, $4 million purchase price. But there it is, proof positive, cold calling in this space can actually work. So let's talk a little bit about the property and, and the business plan. You know, when you guys first looked at it and started underwriting it, was the plan? And um, then we'll go into the due diligence, capital raising, everything else. So business plan first, we've got it. Yeah, so there's 14 classic units and nine down units. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do with that is is get those down units up and going and then get those uh, 14 classic units uh, renovated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, and these owners haven't really done anything with the property. It, in fact, I don't think there was even an online presence. <laughs> I mean, you, you couldn't even Google to find it. So, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of, you know, just deferred maintenance and things that we wanted to go in and, and uh, just fix it up and, and improve the, the community. Nice. And the nine down units, you know, when you, when you say down, uh, like torn down to the studs? A or, few of them were, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So, so nine down, that's, that's an immediate value add place. So 53 total units, you know, nine is, is almost 20% of the units down. So if you can bring those back up, you know, that's an easy 20% increase to your, your NOI every single month or every single year, depending on what, uh, what you're looking at. So, and then 14 classic units, what was the, the level of, you know, renovations or, you know, refinishing you had to do to bring it up to, to par with the rest of the building. I think we're putting about eight grand into each one of the, the classical units. And, and I, I want to say that's warranting a rent bump from around 700 to about nine and a quarter. Okay. So, so about two, 225 per month for $8,000 worth of work. Okay. So, so math in public, let's see one that's, that's, that's 3000, almost $3,000 a year and increased revenue for $8,000 worth of work, which is, I don't know, roughly 40% cash on cash return. But once again, that's, that's top of my head math in public, <laughs> but that, those are, those are some sweet numbers right there. And, and how much, how much uh, did you guys plan for your, your down units to bring them well, back up? So we're, I'm actually going back and forth on that right now. Mm-hmm. Our, our initial budget was around 20 grand. We're mm-hmm. looking closer to about 25 right now. Okay. But there was some of them were in a little worse condition. We're, we're factoring in some, some other things that we, we weren't. So it, it, it really just depends on kind of what you include, mm-hmm. yep. you know, whether you're including the HVAC uh, updates and kind of what finishes we're, we're going back and forth on. Okay. Yeah. And still the, the, the ROI, ROI on those as well. And, you know, if you're getting about, you know, $900 per unit, once those are done, you know, multiply that by 12 math and public again, you know, that's about 10 grand in income a year from each one of those, which is, is still a 40% return on investment. So you know, good, good, solid plan going in. The numbers were there and, you know, you guys were able to, to find a, a peach of a deal. Okay. <laughs> Pun intended. If yeah, you guys yeah, didn't yeah. catch that, you know, <laughs> listeners, Georgia is the peach state. So there we go. Um, so let's talk about due diligence, um, how that went out. And uh, Sterling, I think that's yours, right? Yeah. I mean, we can, we can both chime in. So yeah. we started our first property tour we had our property management company go and walk the units. We actually had three property management companies go and watch walk the units simultaneously, which created a, a bit of a, a stir on on the campus. Yeah, um, 
well, it was also, you got to keep in mind there was COVID restrictions and then there's an unruly seller. So it was, it was, it was an unusual kind of event where I think they got sent home early. They all got like kind of cut off after a couple hours. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had, a we, none of us were there on site for that initial uh, walk through of the units. And so we hired a task rabbit that we paid, I don't know how many dollars an hour to basically just follow the property managers from unit to unit and hold up a, 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 a camera phone. Mm-hmm. FaceTimed us with the video. So we're like, Hey, Hey, go walk over into that corner. What's that? And go Mm -hmm. walk over into that corner because of the, you know, the situation with the seller and COVID and all the folks that were in and out, we weren't able to see all the units on that particular day. Mm -hmm. So that was when we went back to the seller and renegotiated a second on site property walk. And that's when I flew out and and walked the remainder of the units. So it was a really good opportunity for me because I just absolutely love the area. It's, you know, we say, I think we, we say Atlanta on the MSA, Atlanta MSA on the, in the OM. And, and that's what you refer to, but it's actually, it's the town is called noon in Georgia and it's just a beautiful area. And uh, just driving the streets. I mean, I, I've told everybody I would buy a house across the street from the complex in a, in a heartbeat. Like it's just a wonderful area nice. and talking to the current property manager, the past property manager at this point, you know, she was, she was very open about how she felt the rents could go even higher and it had all this potential, but the previous owners wouldn't allow them to spend a dime mm-hmm. on any of the renovations. So it, it gave us a really um, good feeling about, about all the potential that we had, you know, made a good selection. And I made that visit before our, our, our earnest money went hard. So it made us feel good about, about that decision as well. Um, after that, we sent a few other folks out there um, during the inspection period. We had a, I think we had an engineer go and look at some settlement in one of the buildings. We had, it was a PCA inspection. What was that, Andrew? Yeah, we, we right. We had due diligence uh, report done by a professional company. Okay. Yeah. All right. And they, so, they also went into every single unit too, right? No, not every unit. They they uh, inspect the roofs and, and mm-hmm. yeah, exterior. So so you had a, you had a team of inspectors that came in and did basically what inspectors do. They they check the building from from top to bottom, and you know obviously at a cost, you know which is you know risk capital for you guys. You know it's, it's expenses that you guys put out, but if if you don't close, it's just capital that uh, that gets sucked up, cost of doing business. So you had all the professionals come out that gave you the reports, they gave you all the documents you needed. And end of the day, it sounds like everything you guys went into with underwriting, you know, most of the things have been ver- verified. The rent bumps, the um, the business plan was verified, and you guys decided that you guys were going to push forward with the deal. All right, so so d- due diligence done. Uh, next thing we, we look at, uh, let's look at the path to closing. And I think a lot of times in, in deals, there's always one or two or <laughs> many hiccups depending on, on how things go, uh, what challenges did you guys face getting this across the finish line? Yeah. So we, it seemed, we seemingly bumped into a, a few different things along the way. First being kind of the, the seller's unwillingness to let us have adequate access to mm-hmm. the property to complete the due diligence. Uh, we were able to power through that, um, we also had, you know, kind of a, an issue collecting all of the all of the proper um, documentation from them mm-hmm. during the due diligence period, the financial information. So it was that was kind of pulling teeth. Um, as we get closer to the close date, and you know, we've already kind of agreed to close. We 
we kind of went through a few different key principles. So some of the um, folks that we, we were trying to get to sign on the loan had the net worth and had the liquidity and had the experience, but, but they didn't have the local experience Mm -hmm. and they, the lenders were being rather specific about wanting us to have local uh, Atlanta experience um, to be able to sign on loan. And none of us were from Atlanta nor had any experience Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. So that was one hiccup that we had to overcome. Um, I think we had to exercise one of our uh, two week extensions on the close, mm-hmm. which we had to put additional hard money down to exercise that extension to get our, our loan closed in time. Being our being our first deal, I think we kind of dragged our feet a little bit about putting all of the marketing documentation together. Mm-hmm. So we, we weren't able to raise capital quite as quickly as we would have wanted to. You know, it, we were kind of we were kind of pushing it, counting our pennies up into the last minute. Whereas I, I, I would have liked, you know, ne- next time I'll, I'll oh, definitely yeah. have, have it all lined up before, you know, um, sleep well the night before we sign, not hoping that that last <laughs> wire hits the account. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you the, the biggest lesson learned I had after closing our first one, incidentally, the numbers are almost identical. It was 55 units at a $4.0 million mark. And you guys were at 53 and 4.2. So the numbers were super close. Biggest lesson learned for me was we needed to have a sense of urgency from the beginning. I mean, we looked at that long contract period and said, oh, we got plenty of time for all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. But man, that clock ticks and it just seems to, to speed up and speed up as you go. But uh, so so difficult seller, you know, issues with the key principle. And, and just, just to revisit that subject, in order to get a commercial real estate loan for, for listeners, Banks are going to require you know, just the things that Sterling mentioned. It, it's going to be you have to have net worth collectively that is greater than the loan amount. You have to have a certain amount of liquidity and different loan programs vary between you know, a percentage of the loan or you know, maybe 12 months. I know, I know some, some loan program, programs require 10, 12 months of principal and interest payments you know, is what you have to have liquid. And you have to have experienced people on the GP as well. And most lenders, just like Sterling said, want to have somebody in the GP that is local or close enough to the property that, you know, basically the lenders are trying to mitigate the risks. And, you know, having somebody there on site is, is one less thing that they have to worry about. So anyway, that aside, done. You guys were able to close. You closed on, on February 23rd. Sweating bullets maybe the night before, but uh, <laughs> how, how's it gone since? It's going good. I feel like we're ahead of schedule. You know, I was, I was telling you earlier, we're, you know, we were underwritten to be at 50% occupancy right now where we're at 80. Mm-hmm. Um, we're underwritten to uh, have the down units uh, online by July. And now we're looking at, at having them online by May. So um, rents have continued to increase in the area. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, all, all signs are good. We're a little under budget in some areas, a little over budget in other areas. So financially, we're about flush. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I couldn't be happier with the progress at this point. Yeah, I mean, those, those are some solid numbers. And it sounds like you guys had a pretty conservative estimate going in. I mean, if, if you're if you're estimating 50% occupancy going in, where, where were you at close, by the way? Occupancy so we, we underwrote it at 63% occupancy and we ended up at 80 so you, you estimated a 63% um, occupancy in your underwriting. And fortunately, you guys were at 80 when you closed. So you, you've been able to, 
to crush your numbers. So good conservative underwriting definitely helps out when it comes to, to meeting the numbers later on. All right. So, so a couple of, of questions as we wrap up, but I want both of you guys to answer the same question. What's next for you? Yeah, we're, uh, we're, you know, find, looking for another deal, you know, we're looking for another deal to, to take down a uh, similar size or bigger. And, you know, we, we've got the, the podcast, we're, you know, increasing our online presence, uh, you know, we feel like we'll be able to, you know, do this again. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Serving anything to add? Yeah, absolutely. We, we're uh, really looking to uh, take down a couple more deals before the end of the year. Uh, we've been revamping our website, uh, writing some, some lead magnets, trying to, to increase our investor relations program, um, as well as, as you know, Andrew has really ramped up his, his deal sourcing. He's been, um, teamed up with a couple other groups, including the one we worked on this deal with to underwrite as, as many uh, projects as we can until we make something stick. But we're, we're going real aggressive. We're pouring um, a lot of time, attention and, and money into our, our marketing, both mm-hmm. on the acquisition and the investor relations side. All right. Now here, here's my favorite question, the whole podcast. And I, I do save the best for last. What advice would you give an aspiring investor that's six to 12 months behind where you are right now? I would say just keep trying. I mean, I, so it was 2018 that I actually, I spoke with the broker and said, you know, and he he said, you need to get some education. I'm like, what? I'm closing all these, you know, commercial loans, these big loans. You know, why do I need education? But I did. And so it, it took a little while, you know, it took a while to, to get there, but uh, just keep trying. I mean, day after day, uh, you know, phone call after phone call, uh, eventually you'll, you'll be able to get, get where you want to be. Yeah, I, I would have to echo what Andrew's saying. I think, you know, tenacity and just not giving up is really the only difference between people that give up and people that don't give up. Um, it, it is a, it's a process. So you're not going to go, you know, buy a $5 million apartment complex two weeks after you decide you want to go buy a $5 million apartment complex, unless you happen to be somebody who has $5 million sitting yeah. around. If you have $5 million in the bank, you can do that. <laughs> Yeah. For what we're trying to do in this business, it's a process. It takes a year. I mean, it doesn't have to. I I know a lot of people who've gone out there and hired coaches and and gotten something done in three months. And I I, I never did that because I'm hardheaded and I had to take the, 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 you know, the long road, but a a lot of the really successful folks I talked to have done that. So if I could go back in time, I might consider it. I mean, I, I didn't really have the cash laying around to buy a $25,000 coaching program. But, you know, if I did, like, it seems to be a shortcut that has worked well for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, it was, it was definitely an accelerator for me. And that's, that's the best way to put it is it reduced the time between, you know, first crack and first deal, you know, so I, I was able to, depending on when you start the clock, you know, we, we closed on our first deal within a, the first year. So after about four months of coaching, five months of coaching, we had our first deal under contract. So it definitely reduces the amount of time. There, there, there's lots of good reasons for coaching, lots of good reasons for getting a mentor. And oh, by the way, you know, a lot of people are able to get mentors without paying the 25K or 30K or 50K, whatever people are charging now. But uh, good prices advice from both of you. Thanks a lot. And last question for both of you. How can listeners learn more about you? And Sterling, you're going first this time. Awesome. Awesome. So they can find either one of us on Facebook. We're both active Facebook on 
under our, our own names. Uh, they could check out our podcast, uh, the Rent Roll Radio Show. Mm-hmm. Um, they could go to our website, CrestworthCapital.com, or they could go to our our, our podcast website, which is um, RentRollRadio.com. I, I don't mind throwing my number out there to anybody who yeah, wants to reach ahead. out and, and talk real estate. It's 225-247-5562. And then our email addresses are just our names at Crestworth Capital. So Sterling at Crestworth Capital or Andrew at Crestworth Capital. All right. Andrew, anything to add to that? Uh, no, I, 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 you can also find me on LinkedIn. You know, my number is 801-707-0725. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see that on the Monday. All right. Awesome. So so good enough. And contact information is going to be in the show notes. So if you're interested in hit, hit, hitting up the, the Rent Rural Radio, um, as Sterling mentioned before, you know, I was a guest on one of those, but we'll put a link to the Rent Rural Radio, the websites you guys mentioned social media profiles, and we'll drop your phone numbers in the show notes. So if anybody wants to contact them, you know, don't worry about hitting the rewind button and copying things down. Just tap, swipe, tap, and, you know, the magical internet will whisk you away. So, all right. Hey, cool. Thanks so much uh, to both of you for for coming on the, the podcast today. You know, once again, congratulations on closing the property. You know, as we're recording, it's it's about a month after um, you know, by the time this airs, it'll be a couple months, but, uh, you know, congratulations and look forward to, you know, a lot bigger properties and, and more properties in the future. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.